Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Dr. Michael L. Brown. And we talked back in July about a book he wrote titled, Has God Failed You? Finding Faith When You're Not Even Sure God is Real. That was published May 11th, 2021. But today we're going to talk about a book he just published in October 2021. Title of that book is Revival or We Die. A Great Awakening is Our Only Hope. And it's a subject I'm interested in. I wrote my thesis in history on the subject of the first Great Awakening. So I'm somewhat familiar with that subject, at least as far as America goes. And uh, I have a list of uh, Dr. Brown's books in our earlier conversation. So if you want to check out his books, you can probably find them on Amazon or in our early conversation. He's written over 30 books. He holds a PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Literature from New York University. Um, he's also spoken throughout America and on more than 30 countries. He hosts the nationally syndicated daily radio talk show, The Line of Fire. He's also the founder and president of Fire School Ministry in Concord, North Carolina, and serves as a vis visiting or adjunct professor at a number of seminaries. So I'm delighted to have Dr. Brown back. So Dr. Brown, how are you? Uh, doing very well. And it's, it's great to know about your, your thesis. That's fascinating. Yeah, I actually read my thesis into my podcast. You can read about it. It was about uh, uh, a character named da James Davenport who mm -hmm. lived in New England. And he's not really a known character in history, but he was very radical. He was yeah. almost like a Savonarola in Italy. If you know of Savonarola, he was Absolutely. kind of the bonfire of the vanities. So Davenport was, he didn't know Savonarola, but he did the same stuff. So he would crawl on his hands and feet and uh, kind of have a very ecstatic or i would say overly ecstatic kind of version of christianity burned people's belongings and what it did was it kind of took the old and new lights and solidified their ideologies in response to davenport's highly ecstatic kind of version of christianity which petered out and uh, that was kind of my thesis was kind of bringing kind of some of these older characters uh ideas that were coming out of Boston at that time in relationship to Davenport. So I'll send you a copy. <laughs> very good. Yeah. I actually got an A on it. I was very pleased. Uh, good, good. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting to hear. Of course, when I'd studied uh, the awakenings in America and first great awakening, I, I'd read about Davenport and some of the extremism. Oh, okay. What's no, interesting yeah. of course, is that Edwards uh, saw in his meetings, some, some intense manifestations of the spirit and, and Jonathan Edwards own wife would have trances for hours and hours and, so there were these supernatural experiences, but then there were people that went to extremes. And, you know, what I've seen over the years is that the extremes of the revived are louder and more noticeable than the extremes of the non-revived. In, in other words, there's, there's more noise among the revival extremists than there is, say, in a cemetery. So that's what often happens. But, but the awakening came because people were spiritually dead or just religiously traditional and immorality was rising. So you have the extremes on all sides, but yeah, Davenport, uh, be great to read more about that. Yeah, no, really interesting. I kind of went back to source material, but it was in the time of Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, if I can remember offhand. And there was a couple other itinerant ministers who were traveling around, but they had legitimate awakening. Like it was a legit, and you cover some of those stories in your book and your experience with revivalism, but they were a legitimate, teachers whose impact was very profound at that time and still reverberates today. Edward still, people still read Edwards about his, uh, his sermons and what he was doing. 
Yeah, abs absolutely. In fact, Yale University continues to put out a massive series, uh, scholarly annotation on, on the works of Edwards. So it's both philosophical and theological. But some of his most famous writings were written in the midst of awakening and were written even to deal with criticisms like Charles Chauncey, who was one of the great uh, critics of, of Jonathan Edwards. And it was a uh, church historian, Conrad Cherry, who made the observation that whereas Chauncey focused on the chaff, Edwards focused on the wheat. So Edwards saw what God was doing and sought to cultivate that in, in the hearts of many, where some of the critics saw the extremes and the negatives and failed to see what God was doing, which can happen anytime God moves in revival. You can focus on what God is doing and the genuine conversions and the genuine transformations and, and more happening in a year than has happened in 20 or 30 years of your best ministry work. Or you can focus on, on the extremists or, or the flakes or those who are aberrant and that was one of Jonathan Edwards' points. The fact that you have counterfeit does not take away from the true. Right. And I think I mentioned Chauncey in my pieces, too. So it's interesting you, you have such a good memory of that. Um, and that theme does pervade your book. I mean, it really is about a great awakening and a revival. And these supposedly, according to some historians, the U.S. has gone through four great awakenings or four uh, periods of revival. And you call for that right here in this time and now like i mean it's pretty an intense time like what uh can you talk about like you have your own experience of revival how would you kind of put your own experience in revival and and apply it to the general american populace yes yeah, so first let's let's look at where we stand today in america we, we really are in a critical point we've even seen just the number of professing christians in america drop from 85 percent of the population to 75 percent in about a decade now we understand Many of these numbers were inflated that no, none of us think that there are that many true Christians in America. But the amount of people dropping out, the amount of people identifying as religious nuns, that they have no religious affiliation, it, it, is, it is quite striking. The, if you just look at a few symptoms of a spiritually sick and morally sick society, porn addiction, you have rampant porn addiction in the church. You have kids being exposed to porn on average 10, 11 years old for the first time. I mean, shocking things like this. The degree of division that we have in our nation, we are tearing apart from the middle in every way. And chaos and anarchy seem right around the corner at any turn. The aggressive LGBTQ agenda, the normalizing of transgender activism and all the implications of that, redefining of marriage. I mean, these, these are foundational and major things. And then in so many churches for so many years, a compromise, what's in it for me, gospel being preached that has produced shallow and even false conversions by the millions. These are just a, a few of the many critical issues facing our nation right now. And there is no political solution doesn't mean we abandon politics, but we understand that there's no political solution that's going to turn the tide. And that just as great awakenings came in the past to America, times of crisis, there was, there was one leader, the time of Jonathan Edwards, speaking of the spiritual condition of some of the colonies in the 1720s. These were the colonies, which were almost theocratic, some of them. He said religion lay, as it were, dying in America. It was out of that that the, the first great awakening came. James Edwin Orr, the revival scholar, points out that Chief Justice John uh, Marshall said 
in, in around 1800 that the church has fallen too far to recover. Because after the Revolutionary War, there was a time of tremendous backsliding in America. It was the second great awakening that came after that. Uh, or documents how prior to 1857, before the great prayer awakening that swept the nation, 1857, 1858, that atheism was on the rise, sexual immorality was on the rise, witchcraft was on the rise. You think back then? Yes. So in each of these times, it was a, a great move of God that turned the tide in America. And I'm sure that's our only hope today. Other, otherwise, if we continue in the direction that we're going, we're going to collapse or disintegrate. As far as my own experience, I got saved in 1971 as a heroin shooting LSD using 16-year-old Jewish hippie rock drummer. I didn't understand at that time that what happened to me was part of a much larger movement known as the Jesus People Movement. But it's fascinating that you can look at the front cover of Time magazine in April 1966, in one of the April editions. It was the first time Time did not have a, a uh, cover picture. It was just three words in stark print on the cover. Is God dead? That was April 1966. I was part of the counterculture revolution. That's why I got caught up in drugs and rock music and rebellion. Part of that whole destructive thing that was happening in our society, and we still feel the results and reverberations of that to this day. What happened was that people began to pray, and God began to move, and beginning around 67, but really reaching its height around 71, 72, all around the world, hippies, radicals, rebels, were getting radically and dramatically saved. Most of the people that I work with in Jewish ministry and Jewish outreach to this day all got saved within a few-year period right back then. So my life was marked first by the counterculture revolution and then by the Jesus revolution or the Jesus people movement. And so Time Magazine, June of 1971, what's, what's a cover story? There's a picture of a hippie-looking Jesus, and it says the Jesus revolution. So my own life was marked by the, the one negative, destructive cultural change, trend and, and then this holy spiritual movement where God radically transformed me. And then I had the privilege of serving as a leader in the Brownsville Revival from 96 to 2000. It began one year earlier. And church historian Vincent Sinan said that it, it was the longest running local church revival in American history. And I'm an eyewitness to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of meetings and several hundred thousand different people responding to the altar calls. And to this day, I can point you to this one who was saved there dramatically and is serving God. This one who's on the mission field that was transformed there. Story after story, if, if, if we could compile all the stories, really it would take hundreds and hundreds of volumes to tell all the stories. I'm an eyewitness to what God can do in times of outpouring, and I know it is our only hope today. It's remarkable. So your time at that Brownsville, you're actually part of the Great Awakening tradition of these revivals going back 200 years to Edwards. And what was the other guy's name? I can't remember. I wish I could remember offhand. So there's legitimate, real, intense spiritual events happening at these revivals, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking about the presence of God coming in an intense and unusual way because of which you see people coming under deep and dramatic conviction of sin. Uh, you know, just this little illustration. Uh, the revival took place in Pensacola, Florida. 
and people would come from around the world from over 130 nations to be in the meetings the spiritual hunger was so great that the lines would begin to form at six in the morning and then people would wait online for 12 hours to get into the meeting which started at seven doors would open at six they'd come in at seven and we'd go roughly five six hours uh four nights a week plus one night for prayer so it was an intense environment and atmosphere but during the summer you know, a lot of the guys would be wearing shorts it's, just, it's it's hot out they're standing in line for hours and when the altar call would be given uh, numerous men got carpet burns on their knees because when the altar call was given they went running as fast as they could to get right with god and when they hit their knees they just slid the rest of the way to the altar so i mean it's it's a tiny little illustration but it indicates how deep the conviction would be. We heard many testimonies of people coming to the Lord, standing outside the doors, encountering God. One woman that became a member of the church, we heard her testimony. She was driving by the building one day with no thought of God whatsoever. Suddenly the presence of God filled her car. She came under a deep sense of conviction, began to weep over her sins in the car, cried out to the Lord to save her, and then subsequently became a member of the church. That's how we heard her story. So the conviction of sin is intense. The conversions are radical. You're, you're talking about people. And I tell some of the stories in Revival or We Die. Eyewitness testimonies that people would vouch for today over 20 years later and say, yeah, it's real. And I've been changed ever since. But I mean, kids who were known as the worst in their school suddenly so transformed, they're leading all their friends to Jesus and their friends are getting radically converted. So radical conversions and then backsliders who've been away for years coming back to God, and then believers feeling as if they got born again all over again. Many a pastor would come to the revival. They would charter a few buses. They'd come down with a few hundred people, and they're saying to themselves, and they would tell me afterwards, you know, years later, oh, yeah, I brought my people there because I thought they needed it. I thought they needed a fresh touch from God. I saw I thought some of them were backslidden. And they'll tell me I was the first one to respond to the altar call, which is hard when you're the pastor, right? People think, what, are you a rapist? Are you a murderer? You're, you know what? Because you're running to the altar weeping. But they would come under conviction as pastors and leaders. And they would tell me years later, it's as if I got born again all over again. And, and some of my favorite stories were the ones where people came to the meetings. Uh, they came from around the world. They were blessed but they were expecting more. And here they are with the crowds, with thousands of people, with hours of worship, with, with intense expression of emotion, with people praying for them, and, and they were expecting more. And when they left, for some on the plane, for some driving back in their cars, for some when they would stand behind their pulpit the next service, that's when they got visited. That's when something happened, and they realized why. I can't say this was emotionalism. I can't say this was just because of the crowds. That this this was God. You know, one one pastor touched in the revival goes back to England, uh, where he pastors, doesn't know what to expect, gets up on Sunday morning, and and it's one of these I saw the Lord encounters, Isaiah six. You know, undone his people, undone confession of sin, weeping begins to break out, and God sends renewal to them. I mean, we saw this, we witnessed it day and night and understanding biblical principles understanding past awakenings gave us insight into what was happening and what we were experiencing 
and how we had to seize that moment, train and equip people, which birthed our ministry school, which in turn birthed a missions movement. So there are missionaries all over the world today. Ultimately, we sent out hundreds of missionaries, and many of them are still on the field over 20 years later. The fire continues to burn. That's what happens in revival. And that's why I wrote Revival or We Die. We must have a great visitation again. In this country, it's almost like the Old Testament, too, where the old Israelites are with God, and then they kind of drift off to worldly. God calls them back. They sin. So God's uh, compassion is always there for people, for sinners, too. If they acknowledge their sin properly, to come back and that feel that spirit again. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's the call of the whole Bible. You know, it's articulated in Second Chronicles 7.14, the famous if my people verse. So if we acknowledge our sin, if we turn from it and seek the face of God and pray for forgiveness, he'll forgive and he'll restore. So in a country like America, when you have multiplied tens of millions of believers, if we get our house in order, if we repent of our sin, if we turn to God because of our divisions and because of our, our carnality, because of our lack of first love, if God transforms us, that will impact the nation. See, revival is for the church, not for the world. Revival is for those who once were alive, but have become dead. But once we are revived, then with that revival spirit, we go and touch the world. Revival will always result in the conversion of sinners. Revival will always reach outside the church building, onto the streets, uh, uh, and, and into the communities. And then with that, with the church coming alive, with the radical conversion and discipling of, of sinners, with God consciousness coming, there can be awakening that comes to the country. And personally, I'm not expecting just one place, oh, you have the Brownsville Revival, you have a move here or move there. I'm expecting in literally thousands of places all over America where God's people are hungry and desperate and seeking him earnestly, where Jesus is being preached, the Jesus of the Bible, excuse me, is being preached without compromise, where there is room for the Holy Spirit to move, and where there is compassionate outreach to the community, I'm convinced that God will visit those places. And I'm seeing pockets of it already all over America. In fact, one pastor just said, hey, I need a case of, of revival or we die sent out. Things are happening. They're in their second week of just going after God every night. Things have been building. They've added early morning prayer. They're seeing people dramatically touch. It's been building little by little by little. I believe God deeply desires to pour out his spirit. He deeply desires to restore his people. His desire is not to destroy, but to bless and heal. But we are in one of those critical moments where if we don't seek him earnestly, just the blood of the unborn, the, the innocent blood that's been shed in America is enough to destroy our nation. We need the mercy of God. It's an urgent hour, but he will respond if we seek him. Right. And you make that, you make those points in your book, not enough true gospel teachings, kind of a watered down. Uh, you make the quote, like the person thought that the pastor was trying to be more like them instead of that person becoming more like the pastor. Like some of this compromise with the gospel and compromise to the world, really. I think I think generally, if you looked over the Christianity of America, I think that you would see more of a compromise with the world. Would you agree with that? Well, yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, the fact is the world has changed the church much more than the church has changed the world. 
for this last generation. I, I don't see any way that you could really argue with that whatsoever. And we've changed our gospel message. Instead of being God first, it's person first, and God's here for the person, meaning it's, it's all about me. I've often said that the American gospel is this. This is who I am. This is how I feel. And God is here to please me. The biblical gospel is this is who God is. This is how I feel. This is how he feels. And we are here to please him. Uh, there's a chapter where I talk about how we've gone from preaching amazing grace to wretched sinners to now we preach to amazing sinners. God just wants you to know how amazing you are. And he would be honored to get to know you if you would give him some time. Now, that's not the gospel. Gospel is you're lost in sin. You've rebelled. You're under the judgment of God. You're guilty. But God loves you with such intensity that he sent his only son to die in your place. And if you'll cry out for mercy and receive his love, he will transform you and forgive you, and you will no longer live for self, but live for God. The messages are so totally different. You know, if, if, if you uh, make a reservation you maybe have to book it three months in advance to the finest restaurant in your city. Uh, they're not standing on the street begging you to come in and offering you an extra appetizer if you will dare to grace them with your presence. No, you have to make a reservation way in advance because everybody wants to go to this place and the food is so good. We've reversed things with the gospel. We've made it, you know, poor Jesus, and he's out in the rain, and it's cold. Would you open the door of your heart and let him in? He'd be really, he'd really appreciate that. We got it all wrong. We're the ones that are outside in the dark, in the rain, ready to be destroyed, and he's willing to open the door. In fact, he's reached his hand out all the way to us through the cross. There's so little fear of God in our midst, so little reverence, so little understanding of the ugliness of sin, of the finality of judgment. And because of that, we don't understand the beauty of the cross. Because we don't know how sick we are outside of Jesus, we don't understand how amazing the antidote is. So we've got to get back to preaching that. I have a whole chapter on rediscovering the law of God or the word of God. And what happens in revival when we get back to the word and start to read it and think, oh my, we're more off course than we realize, but praise God, there are more promises then we realized. I, I even talk about, and you alluded to the, the celebrity pastor thing. Listen, I, I, I have the privilege of preaching in some of the finest megachurches in America and the world, and I'm friends with people with some of the largest TV ministries on the planet. And, and they love the Lord, and the, they're fine churches and godly churches. So I have, I have no problem with people being well-known. I have no problem with people being successful. But when we make that the measure of our faith— when following Jesus somehow makes you cool, where ministry is, is a path to being a celebrity figure, we've gotten things completely upside down. Yeah, and I, I was reading an article by a non-believer, and she was looking at, at the life of a celebrity pastor who had fallen badly, and she said that the more that, that I got to know this person's story, it seemed like he was trying to become more like us than anything else. And that the appeal was, hey, I'm going to be just like the world. You don't win the world by becoming like the world. You win the world by becoming like Jesus. Cultural sensitivity is one thing. Compromise is something entirely different. Right. And you use the example of the book of Revelation and Christ talking to the seven churches about some of those and how some of those people, you're wealthy in one thing, but internally you are dead.
So that's something that's a warning. I think that reverberates 2000 years later. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. I have a chapter about returning to our first love. So that was the Lord's rebuke to Ephesus in Revelation 2. You've left your first love. And I just share honestly from my own heart, my own journal, and, and where as, as a believer seriously running and following the Lord and seeking to be obedient in many ways, I'd, I'd left my first love and, and share that openly. But then there are the rebukes like Sardis. Jesus says you have a reputation for being alive and yet you're dead. But Laodicea, you say, I'm rich, increased in wealth and have need of nothing, but don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Think of being deceived on that level, that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, and think, I'm rich, increased in wealth, and have need of nothing. So self-deception is very deep. That's why Paul frequently warns, don't be deceived. And Jacob, James, says, don't deceive yourselves. So we have to really go to the Lord honestly and say, shine your light on my life. And, and, And here's the good news. If the Lord shows you that you are spiritually sick, if the Lord shows you that you're spiritually backslidden, it's painful, but it's good news. Why? Because it means this is not the way you're supposed to be living. It means there's so much more that God has for you. I would much rather that the Lord spoke to me today. I'm 66 years old. As, as you mentioned, some of my bio, I've been, I've been running hard for years and written over 40 books and and day and night going after the Lord and seeking to be productive for him. If the Lord said to me, you're operating at 5% of your effectiveness, but if you would seek me earnestly, everything would change. As much as that would be a painful rebuke, that would be something very positive because it means there's so much more. And that's how I opened my book. There is more. Those three words. As I read the word, I have to believe there's more than what we're seeing in the churches. As, as I read church history, as I see what God's doing in different parts of the world, I have to believe there's more. As I even look back through my own life, I have to believe there's more. God is honored when we come to him and say, Lord, there must be more. Not more than the cross, not more than grace, not more than the Bible, not more than the spirit, but those very things tell us there is more to be lived out and experienced and greater ways that we can be used and greater demonstrations of God's power based on what he's promised. Right. So he promises all those things if you change, repent. And you also, like one of the things of that conviction of kind of sins is you kind of come to joy after that. You find a relief and a cleanse. So, I mean, some of those things you talk about also in the book. Can you talk about the benefit of that repentance to some of these people who can be released from strongholds? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Think of being free. Think of having a clean conscience. Think of no skeletons in your closet. Think of not wondering if you're going to be caught or found out. Think of not feeling embarrassed about your life. Think of waking up in the morning and you feel loved, and you go to sleep at night and you feel loved. It's, it's beautiful to be free. I have a whole chapter in the book going through Psalm 51, David's Psalms, a great psalm of repentance after committing adultery with Bathsheba and then having her husband Uriah murdered. And, and he repents deeply and, and he cries out for restoration and asks to be thoroughly cleansed by God. So we, we go through that 
psalm verse by verse by verse to help guide you in, in personal repentance. I remember when God set me free from drugs, the feeling of being clean was remarkable. Because I was proud. I thought I was cool doing all the drugs I was doing and stealing money from my own father and just living like a wretch. But, but when he saved me and cleansed me, the guilt was, was gone. And, and, and then just being able to look people in the eye, knowing I was clean. I, I remember something as simple as, as, you know, maybe walking to a bus stop and, and here a police car comes by or in the old days of hitchhiking. And, and I'm thinking, hey, I'm clean. You know, before it's like, oh, I got drugs in my pocket. Oh, this, oh, that. Well, that, that's an exaggerated picture. Most are not living through that. But, but, but the, the beauty of freedom, the joy of, of just knowing you're loved and your future is bright in the Lord, even experience an inexpressible and glorious joy that First Peter talks about, to have that as part of your life, it's very difficult to really experience that when you're guilt-ridden. And it's, it's difficult not to be guilt-ridden when you keep sinning in the same major ways over and over and over and over. But, but when you get really set free, and this is what happens in revival, strongholds that have been there for years are set free. And we would see it literally night in, night out at Brownsville and hear the testimonies every Friday night during the water baptisms of how bondages and strongholds that had been there for years and years were instantly broken. And we would track some of these people and know them or they become students in the school and years later, still wonderfully, gloriously set free. So God understands we're, we're never going to be perfect in this world. And, and our greatest day of holy living, we still depend on his grace 24-7. But mercy is poured out in such supernatural ways, and people encounter the love of God in ways beyond anything they've known. And, and sometimes the tears are tears of joy because people know, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. All this happens with great intensity in times of revival. Right. So it's so important. I mean... This book is very important for people to listen to, to read through, to understand, because you're right. We are in a very, in my opinion, very, we're at the precipice, in my opinion, of like a cultural war. If I mean, we're in a very serious cultural war, but it could even get worse. So people really need to revive. And I mean, there is that conversation on the kind of, kind of a woke right where they use the term the Great Awakening, but that is a kind of, to me, a more plastic airsats awakening. They need to come back to the scriptures and really go through the reading and and, and make that really will meaningful repentance. I mean, where's the best place? I mean, is there anything you'd like to add, doctor, before we wrap this up? Anything I missed? No, just, like just this last thing. Uh, in the, the late 80s, early 90s, I wrote a series of books, revival-themed, wake-up calls to the church, a picture of revival. And they were written with a certain intensity I knew that, that God was going to pour out his spirit in our nation. And, and, and as things got closer to Brownsville and the revival there, uh, I wrote a book that came out three months before the revival began. The closing words were, are you ready? So I felt something was ready to happen. And then sovereignly, God broke out there three months later. And some years ago, the publisher of those early books on revival said, Dr. Brown, would you pray about writing another book on that theme, uh, but in that same style, shorter, kind of with, with real fire and bite. And I said, I would love to, but God has to stir me. I, it's, it's not like when I work on a commentary, just every day you chip away, you chip away, or some doctrinal or apologetic book. 
This is one I had to be moved and stirred a certain way. And that's what happened in writing this. I, I got stirred. The, the intensity, the fire just burning so brightly. And I really believe that as people read the book, and I'm hearing it from readers, that the same fire is burning in them, that, that they're getting stirred in the same way, and, and that faith is rising for revival. We, we must have it. There's no hyperbole in the title, but the encouragement is, I believe God stirred me to, to write, and it's because he wants to move. He wants to part of spirit. America is in a crisis moment, but it's not too late for the nation. And if folks want to get the book, uh, they can get it on our website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. I encourage everyone to sign up for our emails. This way you'll find out about free new articles and video resources every week. So askdrbrown.org or wherever you order books online, christianbook.com or Amazon or Barnes & Noble, any of those will carry it. Awesome. Great talk. Thanks you so much for your time. And your website is www.askdrbrown.org. I'll put that in the show notes. And again, the title of the book is Revival or We Die. A Great Awakening is Our Only Hope, published October 6, 2021 by Dr. Michael L. Brown. Thank you so much, doctor. My joy. Thanks for having me. God bless. All right. Stay there. That was excellent.